footsteps behind you as you enter the woods. Night draws back its cape. Light illumines your path. Open your eyes. Listen. Welcome to Dark Softly Tales. Dark stories for dark hearts. I'm Mav Sky. Good evening, and welcome to your nightmares, where we like to keep it dark and dreamy here at Dark Softly Tales. This is your host, Mav. Okay, folks, I knew this day was coming, and I kind of think you did too. We need to have a serious conversation. What about? Well, I'll tell you, and all I can say is I hope you're not too disappointed. Here it is. We need to talk about meteorites. Yes, meteorites. You know, from outer space. What else did you think I was going to say? Dinosaurs. Don't be ridiculous. (laughs) That's next month. (laughs) I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Actually, maybe not. But why meteorites, you may ask. Tonight's story is the first in a four-part tale called The Color from Space by the one and only H.P. Lovecraft. Is everything starting to make sense? (laughs) Good. Okay, let's jump into it. Actually, before we jump into it, I wanted to take a moment to acknowledge that the U.S. has just celebrated Veterans Day on Friday. And I want to say thank you from the bottom of my heart to all the veterans out there. I have had and have family members of my own in the military and have seen what they have endured upholding the values and freedom of our country. So to our veterans, thank you for the sacrifices you have made so our country can be free. Thank you. Okay, now let's talk meteorites. Meteorites were not acknowledged by the scientific community until 1803. They weren't considered to need an explanation because, you know, weird things rain out of the sky sometimes. Like rocks. It happens. Can you imagine just casually accepting that sometimes rocks just rain out of the sky? It reminds me, when I lived in Texas, I used to ask the locals, like, what season is it now here? Because it was always just hot. It never felt like fall or spring or even winter. And sometimes they would say, oh, it's the rainy season. And I would say, oh, how can you tell it's the rainy season? Is it because it's spring? It's like early in the year? And they would just shake their heads at me, just really annoyed and say, no, it's because it's raining. That's how you know it's the rainy season. So maybe back then they just had this stony season. And you can tell it was the stony season because stones rained out of the sky. Duh. Or can you imagine a kid asking his mom, mom, why is there rocks raining out of the sky? And she's like, it's the stony season. That's the way it is, son. It's just the way it is. And that's how the dinosaurs became extinct. And that's how we'll become extinct too. Okay, going too far. Had to bring back in the dinosaurs. Let's get back to the meteorites. Even the great Aristotle believed that the earth was made up of four elements, air, water, fire, and earth, and that everything beyond earth 
was made up of different matter entirely. And they believed that it was perfect and unchanging. And even Isaac Newton held this belief. So basically before the 1800s, the belief was if rocks fell from the sky, then obviously they just must have come from somewhere here on earth. Kind of weird, but whatever. That all changed one day in 1803, Normandy, France, when numerous people of the same town witnessed a meteor bursting through Earth's atmosphere, and then 300 stones fell from the sky. And it was obvious to the witnesses that the stones came from something outside of the Earth, not inside of the Earth. A physicist named Jean Baptiste Bayet heard of what happened and came to interview the many witnesses and to study the stones. He observed the stones were unlike any other that he had seen locally. However, they were strikingly similar to a stone from a meteor fall, which had taken place in 1790, and that was about six hours south. Armed with these evidences, Byatt brought his findings to the scientific community, and the world has never been the same. So all this to say, when Lovecraft wrote this story in 1927, the whole concept of having rocks from outer space was still relatively new and quite exciting, if not terrifying. So there are three general kinds of meteorites that are classified by the elements that they are made up of. There are stony meteorites, stony iron meteorites, and then iron meteorites. Of the three, the iron meteorites are the rarest and the most interesting. They are composed of iron and nickel and very, very dense. Iron meteorites are basically pieces of the core of a planet or an asteroid. Or to quote NASA, iron meteorites are the cores of ancient worlds. Pretty poetic of NASA there, don't you think? So there is a pattern on meteorites that is quite distinctive, and it's called the Winman-Stanton pattern that's created by a cooling process that supposedly takes place over not thousands, but millions of years. The pattern is pretty fascinating, and I encourage you to go look it up on the internet. In the show notes, you'll find the link to this article on NASA, so you can go read about it yourself if you like, because this stuff is really fascinating. So when Lovecraft wrote this story, the scientific information on meteorites must have been absolutely compelling to him. And he mentions the Woodman-Stanton pattern in the first part of the story. So as you listen along, you'll know exactly what he's talking about. Okay, enough science lesson. Let's jump into the deep, dark forest and go to where the water isn't quite right where the shadows of animals are much longer and thinner than they should be, to where the colors of the world are just a little off. I'm not going to tell you to not be afraid, because where we're going, there's plenty to be afraid of. Take my hand and hang on tight as we journey into the dark. The Color Out of Space by H.P. Lovecraft 
Narrated by Mav Sky. Part 1 West of Arkham, the hills rise wild, and there are valleys with deep woods that no axe has ever cut. There are dark, narrow glens where the trees slope fantastically, and where thin brooklets trickle without ever having caught the glint of sunlight. On the gentle slopes, there are farms, ancient and rocky, with squat, moss-coated cottages, brooding eternally over old New England secrets in the lee of great ledges. But these are all vacant now, the wide chimneys crumbling and the shingled sides bulging perilously beneath low, gambrel roofs. The old folk have gone away, and foreigners do not like to live there. French Canadians have tried it, Italians have tried it, and the Poles have come and departed. It is not because of anything that can be seen or heard or handled, but because of something that is imagined. The place is not good for imagination and does not bring restful dreams at night. It must be this which keeps the foreigners away. For old Amy Pierce has never told them of anything he recalls from the strange days. Amy, whose head has been a little queer for years, is the only one who still remains, or whoever talks of the strange days, and he dares to do this because his house is so near the open fields and traveled roads around Arkham. There was once a road over the hills and through the valleys that ran straight to where the blasted heath is now. But people ceased to use it, and a new road was laid curving far toward the south. Traces of the old one can still be found amidst the weeds of returning wilderness, and some of them will doubtless linger. Even half the hollows are flooded for the new reservoir. Then the dark woods will be cut down and the blasted heath will slumber far below blue waters whose surface will mirror the sky and ripple in the sun. And the secrets of the strange days will be one with the deep's secrets, one with the hidden lore of the old ocean and all the mystery of primal earth. When I went into the hills and vales to survey for the new reservoir, they told me the place was evil. They told me this in Arkham, and because that is a very old town full of witch legends, I thought the evil must be something which Grandams had whispered to children through centuries. The name Blasted Heath seemed to me very odd and theatrical, and I wondered how it had come into the folklore of a Puritan people. Then I saw that dark westward tangle of glens and slopes for myself and ceased to wonder at anything besides its own elder mystery. It was morning when I saw it, but shadows lurked always there. The trees grew too thickly, and their trunks were too big for any healthy New England wood. There was too much silence in the dim alleys between them, and the floor was too soft with the dank moss and the mattings of infinite years of decay. In the open spaces, mostly along the line of the old road, there were little hillside farms, sometimes with all the buildings standing, 
sometimes with only one or two, and sometimes with only a lone chimney or fast-filling cellar. Weeds and briars reigned, and furtive wild things rustled in the undergrowth. Upon everything was a haze of restlessness and oppression, a touch of the unreal and the grotesque, as if some vital element of perspective or chiaroscuro were awry. I did not wonder that the foreigners would not stay, for this was no region to sleep in. It was too much like a landscape of Salvatore Rosa, too much like some forbidden woodcut in a tale of terror. But even all this was not so bad as the blasted heath. I knew it the moment I came upon it at the bottom of a spacious valley, for no other name could fit such a thing, or anything fit such a name. It was as if the poet had coined the phrase from having seen this one particular region. It must, I thought as I viewed it, be the outcome of a fire. But why had nothing new ever grown over these five acres of gray desolation that sprawled open to the sky like a great spot eaten by acid in the woods and fields? It lay largely to the north of the ancient road line, but encroached a little on the other side. I felt an odd reluctance about approaching, and did so at last only because my business took me through and past it. There was no vegetation of any kind on that broad expanse, but only a fine gray dust or ash which no wind seemed ever to blow about. The trees near it were sickly and stunted, and many dead trunks stood or lay rotting at the rim. As I walked hurriedly by, I saw the tumbled bricks and stones of an old chimney and cellar on my right, and the yawning black maw of an abandoned well whose stagnant vapors played strange tricks with the hues of the sunlight. Even the long, dark woodland climb beyond seemed welcome in contrast, and I marveled no more at the frightened whispers of Arkham people. There had been no house or ruin near. Even in the old days, the place must have been lonely and remote. And at twilight, Dreading to repass that ominous spot, I walked circuitously back to the town by the curious road on the south. I vaguely wished some clouds would gather, for an odd timidity about the deep skyey voids above had crept into my soul. In the evening, I asked old people in Arkham about the blasted heath and what was meant by that phrase, strange days which so many evasively muttered. I could not, however, get any good answers, except that all the mystery was much more recent than I had dreamed. It was not a matter of old legendary at all, but something within the lifetime of those who spoke. It had happened in the 80s, and a family had disappeared or was killed. Speakers would not be exact, and because they all told me to pay no attention to old Amy Pierce's crazy tales, I sought him out the next morning, having heard that he lived alone in the ancient tottering cottage where the trees first began to get very thick. It was a fearsomely ancient place, and had begun to exude the faint miasmal odor which clings about houses that have stood too long. 
Only with persistent knocking could I rouse the aged man. And when he shuffled timidly to the door, I could tell he was not glad to see me. He was not so feeble as I had expected, but his eyes drooped in a curious way, and his unkempt clothing and white beard made him seem very worn and dismal. Not knowing how he could best be launched on his tails, I feigned a matter of business, told him of my surveying, and asked vague questions about the district. He was far brighter and more educated than I had been led to think, and before I knew it, had grasped quite as much of the subject as any man I had talked with in Arkham. He was not like other rustics I had known in the sections where reservoirs were to be. From him there were no protests at the miles of old wood and farmland to be blotted out, though perhaps there would have been had not his home lain outside the bounds of the future lake. Relief was all that he showed. Relief at the doom of the dark ancient valleys through which he had roamed all his life. He was not like other rustics I had known in the sections where reservoirs were to be. From him there were no protests at the miles of old wood and farmland to be blotted out, though perhaps there would have been had his home not lain outside the bounds of the future lake. Relief was all that he showed. Relief at the doom of the dark ancient valleys through which he had roamed all his life. They were better underwater now. Better underwater since the strange days. And with this opening, his husky voice sank low. While his body leaned forward. And his right forefinger began to point shakily and impressively. It was then that I heard the story. And as the rambling voice scraped and whispered on, I shivered again and again, spite the summer day. Often, I had to recall the speaker from ramblings, piece out scientific points which he knew only by a fading parrot memory of professor's talk, or bridge over gaps where his sense of logic and contuity broke down. When he was done, I did not wonder that his mind had snapped a trifle, or that the folk of Arkham would not speak much of the blasted heath. I hurried back before sunset to my hotel, unwilling to have the stars come out above me in the open, and the next day returned to Boston to give up my position. I could not go into that dim chaos of old forests and slope again or face another time that gray-blasted heath where the black well yawned deep beside the tumbled bricks and stones. The reservoirs will soon be built now, and all those elder secrets will be safe forever under watery fathoms. But even then, I do not believe I would like to visit that country by night, at least not when the sinister stars are out. And nothing could bribe me to drink the new city water of Arkham. It all began, old Amy said, with a meteorite. Before that time, there had been no wild legends at all since the witch trials. And even then, these western woods were not feared half so much as the small island in the Mixcatonic, where the devil held court beside a curious lone altar, older than the Indians. These were not haunted woods, 
and their fantastic dusk was never terrible till the strange days. Then there had come that white noontide cloud, that string of explosions in the air, and that pillar of smoke from the valley far in the wood. And by night, all Arkham had heard of the great rock that fell out of the sky, embedded itself in the ground beside the well at the Nahum Gardener place. That was the house which had stood where the blasted heath was to come. The trim, white Nahum Gardener house amidst its fertile gardens and orchards. Nahum had come to town to tell people about the stone, and dropped it at Amy Pierce's on the way. Amy was forty then, and all the queer things were fixed very strongly in his mind. He and his wife had gone with the three professors from Miskatonic University, who hastened out the next morning to see the weird visitor from unknown stellar space, and had wondered why Nahum had called it so large the day before. It had shrunk, Nahum said, as he pointed out the big brownish mound above the ripped earth and charred grass near the archaic well sweep in his front yard. But the wise men answered that stones do not shrink. Its heat lingered persistently, and Nahum declared it had glowed faintly in the night. The professors tried it with a geologist's hammer and found it was oddly soft. It was, in truth, so soft as to be almost plastic, and they gouged rather than chipped a specimen to take back to the college for testing. They took it in an old pail borrowed from Nahum's kitchen, for even the small piece refused to grow cool. On the trip back, they stopped at Amy's to rest, and seemed thoughtful when Mrs. Pierce remarked that the fragment was growing smaller and burning the bottom of the pail. Truly, it was not large, but perhaps they had taken less than they thought. The day after that, all this was in June of 82, the professors had trooped out again in great excitement. As they passed Amy's, they told him what queer things the specimen had done, and how it had faded wholly away when they put it in a glass beaker. The beaker had gone, too, and the wise men talked of a strange stone's affinity for silicon. It had acted quite unbelievably in that well-ordered laboratory, doing nothing at all, and showing no occluded gases when heated on charcoal, being wholly negative in the borax bead, and proving itself absolutely non-volatile at any producible temperature, including that of the oxyhydrogen blowpipe on an anvil, it appeared highly malleable, and in the dark, its luminosity was very marked. Stubbornly refusing to grow cool, it soon had the college in a state of real excitement, and when upon heating before the spectroscope, it displayed shining bands unlike any known colors of the normal spectrum, there was much breathless talk of new elements bizarre optical properties and other things which puzzled men of science are wont to say when faced by the unknown. Hot as it was, they tested it in a crucible with all the proper reagents. Nitric acid and even aqua regia merrily hissed and spattered against its torrid invulnerability. Amy had difficulty in recalling all these things, but recognized some solvents as I mentioned them in the usual order of use. 
There was ammonia and caustic soda, alcohol and ether, nauseous carbon disulfide, and a dozen others. But although the weight grew steadily less as time passed, and the fragments seemed to be slightly cooling, there was no change in the solvents to show that they had attacked the substance at all. It wasn't metal, though, beyond a doubt. It was magnetic, for one thing, and after its immersion in the acid solvents, there seemed to be faint traces of the Winman-Stanton figures found on meteoric iron. When the cooling had grown very considerable, the testing was carried on in glass, and it was in a glass beaker that they left all the chips made of the original fragment during the work. The next morning, both chips and beaker were gone without a trace, and only a charred spot marked the place on the wooden shelf where they had been. All this the professors told Amy as they paused at his door, and once more he went with them to see the stony messenger from the stars, though this time his wife did not accompany him. It had now most certainly shrunk, and even the sober professors could not doubt the truth of what they saw. All around the dwindling brown lump near the well was a vacant space, except where the earth had caved in, and whereas it had not been a good seven feet across the day before, it was now scarcely five. It was still hot, and the sages studied its surface curiously as they detached another and larger piece with hammer and chisel. They gouged deeply this time, and as they pried away the smaller mass, they saw that the core of the thing was not quite homogeneous. They had uncovered what seemed to be the side of a large colored globule embedded in the substance. The color, which resembled some of the bands in the meteor's strange spectrum, was almost impossible to describe, and it was only by analogy that they called it color at all. Its texture was glossy, and upon tapping it appeared to promise both brittleness and hollowness. One of the professors gave it a smart blow with a hammer, and it burst with a nervous little pop. Nothing was emitted, and all trace of the thing vanished with the puncturing. It left behind a hollow spherical space about three inches across, and all thought it probable that others would be discovered as the enclosing substance wasted away. Conjecture was vain, so after a futile attempt to find additional globules by drilling, the seekers left again with their new specimen, which proved, however, as baffling in the laboratory as its predecessor had been. Aside from being almost plastic, having heat, magnetism, and slight luminosity, cooling slightly in powerful acids, possessing an unknown spectrum, wasting away in air, and attacking silicon compounds with mutual destruction as a result, it presented no identifying features whatsoever. And at the end of the test, the college scientists were forced to own that they could not place it. It was nothing of this earth, but a piece of the great outside, and as such dowered with outside properties and obedient to outside laws. That night, there was a thunderstorm, and when the professors went out to Nahum's the next day, they met with a bitter disappointment. 
The stone, magnetic as it had been, must have had some peculiar electrical property, for it had drawn the lightning, as Nahum said, with a singular persistence. Six times within an hour, the farmer saw the lightning strike the furrow in the front yard, and when the storm was over, nothing remained but a ragged pit by the ancient well sweep, half choked with a caved-in earth. Digging had borne no fruit, and the scientist verified the fact of the utter banishment. The failure was total, so that nothing was left to do but go back to the laboratory and test again the disappointing fragment left carefully cased in lead. That fragment lasted a week, at the end of which nothing of value had been learned of it. When it had gone, no residue was left behind, and in time the professors felt scarcely sure they had indeed seen with waking eyes that cryptic vestige of the fathomless gulfs outside. That lone, weird message from other universes and other realms of matter, force, and entity. Who likes dark stories? People who have experienced a touch of the dark side. People who are a little wiser to the world. People who like their bones chilled and their spines tingled. People like you and me. It's hard to find a story these days that write on the dark side with a touch of whimsy, humor, and heart. Mavsky spreads her dark wings and solves this problem for you. Head on over to Amazon and type Mavsky's name into the search engine. M-A-V-S-K-Y-E. At Amazon, you'll find her Tales to Chill Your Bones series, Girl Clown Hatchet series, Supergirl series, her cult classic novel, Wanted Single Rails, and of course, her brand new release, Cold Hangs the Midnight. Choose your dark flavor and head on over to Amazon today.